Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we ask, should philosophy be done from the armchair, or do philosophers need to go out and find out what people really think? And we'll explore the idea that our speech acts, perhaps in ways that depends on the audience. Hello, my name is Emily McTernan, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Today, we are examining speech acts and uptake. A central contribution from J.L. Austin has been the idea that our speech sometimes doesn't only say things, sometimes it does things. When we speak, we don't only or always convey content or information. We sometimes also, for instance, promise, name, refuse or order, amongst other things. In short, our speech sometimes acts. And that has prompted a great deal of philosophical debate over when speech acts are successfully performed and whether that depends on their effects on the audience. This might sound like an esoteric matter, but philosophers think that thinking about how and when speech does things has implications for what we should think about pornography and for when people really consent to sex. Usually, philosophers thinking about speech acts think from the armchair, but today we will be discussing a paper that goes and investigates what people really think. Our guest today is Dr Sarah Fisher, one of its authors and a research fellow here in the Department of Political Science on a cross-disciplinary project on the ethics of content moderation on social media and the future of free speech online, funded by UKRI. Welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, Sarah. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Emily. It's fantastic to be here. Let's dive straight into speech act theory. So speech act theory has become very popular amongst philosophers, but let's start with the basics. Could you explain a bit to our listeners about speech act theory and what it tells us about how speaking performs actions? How can things be done with words? Yeah, so as you said in the in the intro, um, we really have to go back to the middle of the 20th century and a philosopher called John Langshaw Austin, um, because Austin noticed something really interesting about speech, that we don't just say things and mean things when we speak, um, but we actually do things with our words. And so, for example, When two people stand at the altar and say, I do, they're not just expressing their commitment to one another, but they're actually enacting a marriage. They're changing their marital status and their legal status. And when a judge issues a verdict in a court of law, they're not just expressing their opinion about whether the defendant is innocent or guilty, but they're um, making that person innocent or guilty in the eyes of the law. Um, and even just in less formal situations, um, if you say, I bet, I bet you this, or I promise you that, um, you're taking on some commitments that you didn't have before. And so you're changing your moral status, even if not your legal status. And so, as you quite rightly said, speaking is not just um, a matter of capturing information about reality and communicating that amongst ourselves, but it's actually about changing and shaping our reality, at least our social reality, in certain important and interesting ways. And this was Austin's kind of core insight. And so speech act theory has kind of grown up um, in the wake of Austin um, and thinks about exactly what do we do with our words and how do we do that. Fantastic. And as you've said, it's it's become kind of increasingly important. It's grown up and it's become really important in philosophy and in moral and political issues within philosophy. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. What's, what's made it so relevant and interesting to the philosophers? Yeah, that's right. There's been a real explosion of interest in speech act theory over the last maybe 15 to 20 years. And I think that's been sparked in large part by the work of a philosopher called Ray Langton, 
Um, so Langton argues that speech can sometimes do quite dubious things, um, including subordinating people. Uh, and so she argues in particular that pornography is a type of speech that falls into this category. Now, you might think that sounds a bit strange. We don't normally talk about pornography as being a type of speech. Um, so is it, is it, does it really count as speech? But Langton's looking across the Atlantic to um, court cases and legal scholarship in the US where there's been debates about whether pornography is protected by the First Amendment, which um, provides the right to free speech. And so we might accept then that pornography can be seen as a type of, of speech. And then the question is, well, why, what does Langton think is, is particularly problematic or bad about, um, about pornography? And what she says is that it ranks women as inferior, it legitimates discrimination, and it deprives women of power. So it's not just that it has these effects downstream, as it were, but that it's an, pornography as actually an act of sub, subordination. Um, so yeah, it's an act of subordination that subordinates women. And so as you can imagine, um, this has been quite a controversial argument that has provoked lots of debates. And that's just not just been about the case of pornography, but also more broadly, um, whether speech can subordinate other social groups. And I think this is a debate which has kind of evolved in tandem with a growing recognition of, of the deep effects of power imbalances in society, um, and also a, a pivot in the philosophy of language in particular towards um, ethical and social and political concerns. So there's been this, this kind of general trend and a real growing interest in what speech act theory can tell us about these kinds of issues. And you said that there's been an interest moving away from the pornography case to other kinds of ways in which speech can subordinate other groups. Could you give us a couple of examples? Oh, um, so one of my colleagues, a co-author, one of, one of the co-authors on this paper, does really fascinating work in speech act theory um, about um, how consultation processes that some governments run can end up perhaps subordinating certain groups that aren't listened to or heard in the right kind of way. Um, and so this uses the, the framework and the tools of speech act theory to look at a kind of specific um, legal and political instance. Um, that's just one example, but but of course, there are many more. So let's turn now to one of the central issues investigated in the paper, the central issue investigated in the paper of uptake. I guess this is one of the tools you were talking about in speech act theory. So could you tell us what is uptake and why is it taken to be so important when we're thinking in terms of speech being a way of acting and not only saying something? Yeah, absolutely. So uptake is about whether the audience recognises what speech act is being performed. Um, and one part of Langton's argument that's particularly important regarding uptake and regarding our paper um, concerns silencing. So Langton argues that such is the power of pornography to, to kind of shape how we understand things, that women might end up in a situation where even though they literally say no in response to a sexual advance, they might end up being unable to perform that act of refusal. And that's a very specific kind of uh, silencing which occurs because the audience, the man in this case, 
just understands that no, not as an act of refusal, but perhaps as an act of consent or something else. And so the very fact that the audience doesn't uh, recognize um, a certain utterance to be a refusal makes it the case, according to Langton, that that refusal has not been performed. Um, and so this is um, relates to a kind of general philosophical claim in speech act theory, which is that um, uptake, audience uptake, is necessary for a speech act to be performed. So I can only warn you or ask you a question or make you a request or make a promise if you understand that that's what I'm doing. And if you don't understand that that's what I'm doing or you think I'm doing something else, then I fail to do that thing. So it's a tricky case, this case of refusal. So is the claim here, just to be really clear, the claim is that when the woman says no and it's not heard as no, she's failing to refuse or she's failing to successfully perform the refusal? I mean, it sounds like we're saying, well, she hasn't really said no, but that's not what you mean quite, is it? So I think... Well, that's not what we're calling Sorry, I won't put the words into your mouth. It sounds like a strange thing to say at first blush, right? Because you might say it's sort of letting the man off the hook. We're saying, oh, no, she hasn't refused, even though she clearly said a no. I think that's I think that's exactly the worry, and that's that's why there's been so much controversy and discussion about um, about this in the silencing literature. Um, and I think it is a strong claim. Um, so the claim is that the woman said no, but it might be that she hasn't refused. Now that's not to say that she's consented, but still she's failed to refuse. She has not refused um, because of the lack of uptake. And so that's something which um, a lot of people have wanted to resist. And indeed, that was the motivation <laughs> behind um, this paper that we're talking about today, because one of the co-authors, Leo Townsend, um, he, I guess, more or less agreed with Langton that insofar as um, the woman is not understood as refusing, then she fails to refuse. Um Whereas I, I didn't see it like that. I, I quite disagreed um, and had the opposite intuition that really, as long as the woman has performed all of the steps, um, the conventional steps that are required for refusal, then she's performed the speech act of refusal, regardless of whether the audience uh, interprets her as having done so or not. Great. So that's pulling out a different position. So one position is it depends on what the audience takes you to be doing. And one position you're going for there is that the thought that it, what matters is a kind of social convention. So if a no is generally understood as a no, as a refusal, then that woman providing she's done it in a standard kind of way has successfully refused. Is that correct? Is there anyone who thinks it's about the intention of the yes. speaker? Yes, exactly. So, so that's, that's what, the... I, what I mean to say. What I mean to say is no, and that's what would count. Is that right? Absolutely. So there's these three ingredients that are kind of appealed to in speech act theory. Conventions, you know, using the right kind of words, having the right kind of authority in some cases, um, being in the right kind of social situation. Um, uh, and then there's intention, you know, what's in the speaker's mind, what did they want to do with their words? And then there's uptake, what did the audience actually take them to be doing? And so there's these three components. Um, and speech act theorists differ as to which ones they think are necessary um, or sufficient for performing speech acts. 
Um, and some people think it, it's a kind of mixture of all of them. Um, and so that there's lots of different views you might have about the importance of those. But you're right that um, Leo's view was that uptake was at least necessary for um, performing a speech act, whereas I didn't think it was. So that was our kind of initial dispute. And it turns out that this reflects a, a kind of wider argument that's happened in the speech act literature, um, where some people are quite kind of adamant <laughs> um, and think it's sort of obvious that um, you have to get uptake if you're going to be able to count as performing a speech act. And on the other side, there are people that just think it's absolutely obvious that that's not the case. And through the literature, people have kind of tried to provide these hypothetical scenarios, little speech situations or conversations, which are designed to elicit people's intuitions and um, kind of give, the, give support for their point of view. Um, but in the end, it looks like we've just got a clash of intuitions here and a bit of an impasse in the literature. And here's where your paper comes in. So your study is doing something very different then to lots of this work on speech act theory. So rather than thinking about these examples, these vignettes, these intuition pumps from the armchair, it's a study into how people actually think about the necessity of uptakes and whether uptakes really needed for us to successfully perform some kind of speech act like a refusal. So I guess it's clear now what motivates that turn to empirical research. Is it that you're hoping to see a way forward in this impasse in the philosophical debate? Yeah, ideally. I mean, I don't think it's going to be so straightforward that you can read off, you know, if most people think this, then it must be the right the right answer. That's not necessarily the case. Um, but we did notice that quite a lot of philosophers talk about what's natural to say about a certain case or what most people would say or you know they think it would be bizarre to claim that uptake was necessary here or whatever and we thought there was an important place here for actually going out and seeing across a larger swathe of ordinary speakers um, what actually is obvious and natural <laughs> um, and bizarre so um, really this is this kind of empirical research is designed to sort of help understand who's got intuition, who's got ordinary intuition on their side, um, and therefore which camp needs to present especially powerful arguments in order to overcome those ordinary intuitions if they're going to convince us. Um, and so we, we just were interested. We didn't know what to expect. Maybe also among lay people, views were going to be quite polarised, or maybe we'd find that people were really falling into one or other camp and perhaps kind of vindicating that camp's appeals to intuition. So what would you say to the sceptic who says, perhaps people's first judgments to intuition pump cases, so the vignettes that you offer, or these cases of, is it really a refusal, just aren't that informative? Why would we care about unreflective or naive judgments? You might think the philosopher is better suited to telling something really complicated, like, is uptake necessary for this speech act to succeed than just some random person on the street. Yeah, and I think this is a good challenge and it's an important challenge whenever we're talking about empirical uh, kind of intuition work. Um, and it's something that we address in the paper. You know, ultimately, you might argue that speech act theory is just the kind of thing that's too technical to ask ordinary lay people about. You have to really be kind of embedded in this Austinian um, theory to really take make good judgments about this. 
But in a sense, that does go against um, Austin's kind of ordinary language approach, where he and those who follow him do appeal to our intuitions about what um, what somebody's doing and what they mean. And as I said, within the recent literature, you've got quite a lot of people appealing to that that ordinary intuition and making their case. And so I think there is um, there is a good case for doing this kind of work, even if you're somewhat sceptical about the the overall project of experimental philosophy. And experimental philosophy is this brand of philosophy that says, actually, in general, we should all be going out there and asking people stuff. So if you want to know what is it to blame someone, or how do you, when do when should we blame people? Go ask people uh, rather than trying to guess at it as philosophers in the armchair. Right. Fantastic. And so this is an example of it. But you're right, it does seem like it's particularly pressing in these cases where it's meant to be a bit of ordinary language philosophy. You might think it really matters what ordinary language looks like. I do have a question about that, though. Why not go and look at, if you like, speech acts in the wild rather than vignettes? So the paper is carried out through asking people, I think, about a series of vignettes, a series of cases, and what do they think is happening in the cases? Is there any drawback to doing that rather than trying to look at how people normally talk and understand each other in the wild? Yeah, that's. I think there would be a place for such um, investigation as well. Um, so you could do a kind of corpus study and try to see um how how people individuate speech acts but i think it 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 would probably be somewhat difficult to get at people's judgments about the role of uptake so you have to what we were trying to do was to see whether whether people thought that a speech act was still performed despite the fact that the audience didn't didn't think that speech act was being performed so there's going to be you're going to have to try and find some very specific cases um i'm not sure how easy that would be um looking through a corpus but i think you're right that if if it could be done it would give it would complement the research that we've done here by giving a kind of more natural yeah, more natural view of how people actually behave in conversational environments. But yeah, we were looking from a kind of third personal perspective um, in order to try and isolate specific um, differences between the cases and see how people responded to those. Great. And were you worried about the framing effects of the vignettes or the way that they might be introducing confounding features? There's one that you consider in the paper. I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about the challenges you found coming up with the kinds of vignettes to get exactly the intuitions you wanted and not something else that coming in in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this was the most difficult thing about the project is trying to come up with these vignettes without introducing other confounds. In other words, other differences between the vignettes that might be affecting people's judgments rather than the ones you're trying to probe. Um, and so we had, we re- redrafted and redrafted these vignettes lots and lots of times and sent them around our friends and colleagues asking them for their opinions. Um, and we managed to kind of remove some of, some of the problems. But yeah, it's very, very difficult not to introduce confounds. And so I think we we did initially have some vignettes about thanking, um, but we ended up taking those out because the feedback we got was that it's just it's very difficult to do an indirect kind of thanking. Um, so either you say the words thank you, and then it's very difficult to see that as anything other than a thank you, or you say something much more loose and indirect, and then it's quite difficult to see it as a thanking. So that was particularly difficult. And it, and we ended up 
kind of having to move away from that speech act and towards the four that we ended up with, which were telling, refusing, warning and promising. That's fascinating about thank you. So it turns out that's a very easy speech act to do or it's very hard for it to not get uptake. Unless uh, we do something very strange when we thank people, is that right? I, I guess, so I think we had in our vignette, um, we didn't want to have a case where it said thank you because mm. it's it's very difficult then, I think, for people to imagine what else somebody could have been doing apart from thanking. They might be doing something in addition, but at the very least, they're thanking somebody. So then we I had... a sarcastic thank you? Sarcasm's really tricky, and that was another difficulty we faced, because in speech act theory, this is seen as a kind of non-serious use of language, which falls into another category. So we had to also try to avoid things like sarcasm and irony, um, things like uh, things like actors performing on a stage, also uh, as kind of non-serious use of language. Um, so we ended up... Um, and insincerity was another tricky one, so... Mm. There are some cases where you can read them in two different ways. Either the person is um, refusing, say, but doing it insincerely, or they're not refusing at all. And that's a very subtle difference that we had to navigate around. So, yes, tricky. Sounds like coming up with those vignettes was a significant effort. So let's turn to the results of your study. You consider some features that might make a difference to whether uptake matters so the stakes of the situation that we're in the kind of speech act we have so the warnings the refusals or something else and what happens after the uptake failure what what turned out to matter we went out with these scenarios we got people's views on them and the the kind of the big I guess the first thing that you notice about the results is that people generally did agree that the speech act had been performed across the board um, that was particularly clear for refusing. So, um, that, so that's that it didn't matter what the audience thought had happened. So the person who was the person spoken to in your vignettes just mattered what the person had said. Well, that, that's the thing that was the dominant feature, not what the audience's response was. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So we had these little scenarios and then we would ask people to rate their agreement with a statement um, along the lines of, James warned Mary about the lion or Caroline refused John's offer of food. And then people had to say, to what extent did they agree with that statement on a seven point scale? And most most of the time they were at the top end of that scale agreeing um, that that James had warned Mary or that Caroline had refused, even though the audience in those cases didn't think that that's what the, the speaker had done. So they, there was no uptake. So it looks like a kind of first blush, at least, it looks like people think that uptake is not particularly important. So when you were right and your co-author was wrong. <laughs> that's the way that we think about this. I'm very gracious in victory because <laughs> there are many reasons why it, we, we could have accidentally skewed people towards, um, towards that view and I think one we can talk about this maybe later but one avenue for future research would be to change kind of tweak aspects of the experimental design to see um, if that if that view is stable or if it changes Um, but yes it looked like most people were with me (laughs) Um, less so for promising um, so that was there was more ambivalence about our promising cases and whether the the speaker had really promised when the 
the promisee didn't think that that's what they'd done. Warning and refusing, uh, warning and telling were kind of in between refusing and promising. Yeah, and then so so we found these differences between different types of speech acts, which was interesting, especially because one or two people in the literature, including the philosopher Max de Gainsford, have argued that some speech acts are uptake dependent and some aren't. So rather than taking this kind of uh, absolute view, they think that it depends what speech act you're talking about. And we did find evidence that people's intuitions are affected by the type of speech act. So that was really, that was really interesting. And yeah, it looked like refusing people were very adamant, which is also interesting because that's the one which is really debated in the literature. Have you got any ideas about the potential explanations? So do you think there are reasons, good reasons, why we behave so differently about promising as opposed to refusal? It's really hard to say. So it could be that the nature of the speech act um, means that it's kind of driving these different judgments. And so people have argued, especially with regards to promising, that there's this kind of reciprocity involved. And so you really need the audience to be on board. (laughs) Um, Whereas perhaps refusing, there might be a sense that this is something that you have autonomy over. And really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what other people think. Um, So it might be something to do with the the nature of the speech acts. And that would be that the kind of the most substantive result but it is possible that there was something going on with our cases and this is why it would be good to try a a load more cases to see if this all stands up because it might be that people were kind of latching on to particular things in the way we worded our cases or the particular situation that kind of made them um, made them say different things about the different speech acts. So that's still possible. And I think it would be good in future work to rule that out. And did increasing the stakes change the intuition? So whether the stakes of the speech act succeeding or not succeeding, say the refusal changed, did that alter what people thought about the need for uptake? It's complicated. <laughs> um, we thought it would. So we noticed that the, the kind of the dominant case in the literature, the sexual refusal case, the stakes are so high in this case. Um, whereas you can imagine other refusal cases and people have come up with them where the stakes are much lower. And so it might be about refusing food or something. Not much hangs on, you know, whether or not um, you're understood to be refusing. Um, and so we thought, Maybe, maybe there would be some important difference. And we found some, some evidence for stakes effects, but they weren't uniform. Um, and they, they didn't, um, replicate across all of our, all of the parts of our experiments. Um, so for some speech acts, it looked like raising the stakes made people more likely to say that, um, the speech act was performed despite the lack of uptake. Whereas in other cases, it had exactly the opposite effect. So this is one um, aspect of our findings where I think it would be really good to go away and try and unpick a bit more exactly what was driving those different um, decisions. Um, so that would be that would be a very interesting thing to do. I guess would that be a form of interviews with the people who'd answered the vignettes to see what was the reason you thought this and then that? That would be a really nice way to do it, yeah. Um, and so that that that's one option, and also maybe 
coming up with even more fine-grained vignettes, potentially. So it sounds like you've got lots of ideas for what's next for <laughs> speech act theory um, research. Is there anything in particular you want to do? So you want to look at the vignettes again, you want to see if the stakes are really making a difference. What's next? Is that is that the next part of this research or are you seeing yourself going some other direction? So I think that those things would be really good first steps to verify the results that we got um, and to see what's lying under some of those more puzzling effects. I'm kind of interested the more I think about this research the more I think that people's judgments just depend on what speakers could have done or what they ought to have done (laughs) Um, so for example you might think that someone didn't really promise if they failed to say I promise that because they could have said I promise that and merely saying I will just leaves it too ambiguous and so I think that that would be an interesting area to do more work to look and see you know how much how kind of rich are these judgments in sort of thoughts and normative normative uh, questions this is a thought that the morals and politics might be coming in at the beginning and not the end so we sort of see speech actors we get to import this philosophy of language and it tells us some interesting things about moral and political issues like consent and you're saying actually maybe our moral and political judgments come in way before that is that right the thought? right yeah. Great. That's a fascinating idea. I look forward to seeing your work on that in future. Um, finally, let's link it back, the work you're doing on Speech Acts here, to your broader project at the moment. So at the moment, you're thinking about content moderation. How is Speech Act theory going to inform your work on content moderation, do you think? Yeah, so social media platforms are tasked with the, the unenviable job of having to make thousands, millions of decisions every day about what kind of user posts can be left up on their platforms and what kind need to be removed or otherwise de-amplified to reduce their reach. Um, And I think that ultimately what they're grappling with is the question of what speech act did somebody perform? So was this a threat or was it just a bit of political rhetoric? Um, Is this hate speech or is the slur term being used in a kind of empowering way as a by an in-group member so content moderators have to have to ask these kinds of questions um and that is inevitably going to raise the issue of well what determines which speech act was performed and so then we're right into this philosophical issue of is it uptake that's decisive is it the user's intention is it the conventions that they've used and what indeed are those conventions once we get into online environments and so yeah these these questions I think are going to be ultimately at the heart of content moderation and I think that it's it's useful to apply the the tools of speech act theory to this particular case. Do you think in this case your co-author ends up being right and uptake really will matter? I mean you might think of a social media platform what really matters is your effect in the world so what matters in fact is whether I make a threat and other people think it's a threat and so they feel threatened and not in fact the question of whether my speech act succeeds or is that unfair? I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. I think personally I probably still want to resist it somewhat um, but I, I can see the pressure where what you're trying to do in content moderation is to reduce the the kind of viral harm. Um, and so it, it really does matter what audience, how audiences interpret things. 
Um, on the other hand, you also want to make sure that people are able to express themselves freely and you don't want them to be beholden to audiences being perhaps unreasonable. So these things have to be weighed up carefully, I think. Um, and this raises questions, especially because the audience in online environments is often so unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen to your post once you put it out there. So this raises definitely new issues um, and, and tricky ones. Thank you, Sarah, for that fascinating conversation about experimental philosophy, speech acts online and offline. Today, we've been looking at Sarah Fisher's paper, co-authored with Catherine Francis and Leo Townsend. It's called An Empirical Investigation of Intuitions About Uptake, and it is available now in Inquiry. As ever, these details are in the show notes for this episode, which also include a link to the paper. Next week, we'll be discussing climate change and the findings of an investigation into the high politics and the everyday practices of the UN as we face deteriorating environmental conditions. Remember, to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you take a moment of time to rate or review us too. I'm Emily McTernan. This episode was researched by Alice Hart and produced by Eleanor Kingwell-Banham. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.